0: Welcome to Well, I Know Now, the podcast in which I talk to people affected by dementia in various ways. I've chatted to people living with dementia, those looking after them, to actors, poets, artists, musicians, filmmakers and best-selling authors, and every one of them has taught me something new. I'm Pippa Kelly. My mum Kay lived with vascular dementia for her last decade. At the time, my family and I knew virtually nothing about the condition. We were worried, frightened and overwhelmed and possibly in denial about what might be wrong with Mum. Sadly, that's an all-too-common scenario. Now though, through my campaigning, I know so much more about this cruel set of diseases. I know now that it's possible to live a decent, if changed, life with dementia. I know it's down to all of us to help those with the condition live better, more fulfilled lives. And I know that it's often the smallest things that make the most difference. The poet Sylvia Plath wrote, well, I know now a little more about how much a simple thing like a snowfall can mean to a person. Dementia teaches you this too. My guest today has long believed that food is far more than fuel for the body. Coming from a large Irish family, she's always loved to cook and has known from a young age that sitting down for a meal together brings people close it connects them and warms them it comforts them it nurtures relationships and binds societies neve condon has worked in the catering industry for over 20 years in 2014 she began cooking for older people and encountered the challenges faced by those who find it difficult to swallow for which the technical term is dysphagia and whose meals have to be pureed some of whom of course have dementia At a nursing home in West Cork, she was asked to blend food separately and serve it up with an ice cream scoop. She recalls plating up a white scoop, a green scoop and a brown scoop for a woman who understandably thought it was ice cream, but on eating it found it was hot, savory and salty, not at all what she expected. The woman threw the plate on the ground and refused to eat it. I can just imagine the scene and what was said by everyone involved and what a grim picture it evokes. The incident inspired Neve to get piping. Now she's known for her fabulous pureed creations. From fish and chips to lamb shanks, scones and jam, bacon and cabbage and scrummy cakes, Neve's dishes look and taste like what they are. And funnily enough, once people are given food that looks, tastes and smells as it's supposed to, they're far more likely to eat it. It's hardly rocket science, is it? At the end of 2019, Neve launched her own business, Dining with Dignity creating appetising, visually appealing pureed food using special moulds provided by an Australian company, and training other care home cooks to do the same. Her timing was, to put it mildly, unfortunate. Just around the corner, as we all know now, to coin a phrase, lurked Covid, and in the early spring of 2020, Ireland, along with the rest of the world, went into lockdown but not before the Irish Times had identified Neve as one of their 50 people to watch in 2020. And there have been golden moments over the past two frightening years, one of which involves a truly fabulous golden anniversary chocolate cake that Neve created for Dennis McCarthy, who lives with dementia, and his wife Anne, who lives in a nursing home, of which more later. But warning, get your tissues ready, is a tearjerker of a story. Now that hopefully we're beginning to get back to normal, Neve is ramping up her business again. Though to Neve, it's far more than a business. She's passionate about exposing the struggle, stigma, and exclusion faced by those with swallowing difficulties. Imagine going into a room, she tells me, where everyone is split into two groups. One group is offered tea, coffee, biscuits, and made to feel welcome. The second group is simply ignored. That's what it's like when you can't swallow. Feel isolated. I set out to try and help as many chefs cooking for people with dysphagia as I could, said Neve. I wanted to help those sitting around the table facing three scoops on a plate. For me, Neve's cooking, her understanding and preparation of food hold many valuable messages. Not just about people with swallowing difficulties, or even the ethos of care homes, and the havoc reeked by COVID as it split families apart. But about what eating and sharing meals means to us all, what they bring to us, there's an almost philosophical aspect to what Neve does that speaks to the way we live our lives. So, Neve Condon, dysphagia cook extraordinaire, welcome to Well, I Know Now. Well, Pippa, thanks so much for that introduction. <laughs> you know, pleasure. And I've just realised, actually, ridiculously, that if you should ever decide to write a book about all you've done you'd have to call it three scoops on a plate yes yeah, totally <laughs> um but first I think it would be really relevant if you took us back to your childhood on the west coast of Ireland because I think that was quite influential in you wasn't it your your uncle the butcher taught you about the different cuts of meat and your big family your grandparents so just take us back to your childhood and describe it a bit to everybody listening
1: yeah, I did start in my uncle's butcher shop at the age of 12. And many people will say, oh, my God, that is just crazy. <laughs> However, I wanted to learn and mm. I just wanted to get stuck in. Mm. So while I was there, yes, obviously we couldn't go out knives. I was 12 years old. But we got to see so much. Mm. We got to see meat being brought in from an abattoir mm. and being processed into what we know now as steaks and mincemeat and, and whatever else that the cuts of meat and listening to my uncle speaking to his customers about how best to cook it. And Mm. I just thought, wow, this is not just getting something in the shop, going home, putting it in the oven. There was so much more to it. Mm. But I never wanted to be a chef, funnily enough. I started out telling my uncle, no, I'm not going to be a chef. I'm going to be an engineer. And he said, I disagree. And if you can cook, you'll always have a job. Hmm. So he's right, but I wouldn't tell him that because uh, (laughs) he would (laughs) really joke on that one. But it wasn't just the butcher shop or the deli. My grandmother lived, oh goodness, uh, about a mile away from that butcher shop. And I used to spend Saturdays with her every Mm. Saturday where we would sit, we would cook, we would clean. We would just do regular household chores. And it... It gave me an insight into her life because every time you did something, it was okay. let's put the kettle on. Mm. And there was a story, Mm. even though it didn't be a story, there was a story. There was a story behind. Do you know why we bake scones at a certain temperature or do you know why we would use the juice from the meat to make a gravy? These type of conversations that Mm. I didn't think affected me, Mm. but I obviously took it all in and yes that was my grandmother in Ennis but then I went to Cork which is a two-hour journey from Ennis to study food process engineering and while I was doing that I stayed with my other grandparents and yes it was a case of I'll cook for you because you're letting me stay in your house Mm -hmm. Um, but it was also them cooking for me it Mm -hmm. wasn't just Mm -hmm. a one-way street it was Me looking to see what they were eating and trying to understand because everything, I couldn't get my head around everything being cooked for so long. Right. But a lot of this was down to them worrying about the food safety and also that they couldn't chew the food correctly if it was too tough. So if it wasn't cooked long enough in their eyes, they ended up struggling chewing it and then they just would push it aside.
0: Oh, that's interesting. So that sort of came into your life really early, this aspect of eating. But Mm. I didn't really take any notice to it at the time. And the other thing I
1: noted when I look back now was the different types of cuts of meat that they would buy. They were mainly cheaper cuts. So I always thought that it was down to money and to the cost of things. But clearly it wasn't because obviously the cuts that they were buying needed to be cooked longer either way. So it was clever on their part because Mm -hmm. they were obviously very economic and and mindful of their money. But they were also thinking of the end result. There was a traditional um, dish that they would call bodice in Cork. Mm -hmm. What bodice means? It's bacon ribs. So instead of a piece of bacon, they would get bacon ribs and boil them slowly for a couple of hours until the meat fell off the bones and that was served with cabbage and potatoes so it was yes it was bacon and cabbage but it was a cheaper cut mm. but the result I can still taste it mm-hmm. the result is just fantastic and the, and the texture of the meat was just like butter it just melted so once that served to me I got the whole reason why they liked using different cuts of meat and the whole aspect of
0: cooking it for so long Hmm. Mm. That's really interesting because actually you sort of imbibed it without knowing, I expect. It just went in you, didn't it?
1: Well, it just did. And obviously it stuck with me, but at the time I didn't take too much notice to it. I just knew that when I was in my grandmother's house, I was cooking different cuts of meat and kind of making sure that it was the correct texture and cooking it for a longer time. Yes.
0: Interesting too though. You say, you know, you wanted to cook to say thank you for having you, but also they cooked. And so cooking is often a two-way thing, of course, but it's very much about giving, isn't it? Yes. And it was my
1: grandmother was a was a brilliant baker, more so than a cook, because she would tell you that herself. She'd say, Oh, I just throw it in the pot and hope for the best. But she was very good at baking. And the smells of apple tarts in, in the house was just Really, really moving because she wouldn't just cook one,
0: she might cook four because somebody might cook. (laughs) Yes, a very generous thing, isn't it, cooking? And normally it's very inclusive, it brings people together. But of course, if you have dysphagia, it's completely the opposite. So that was how you began your love of food. And interesting actually about this whole realization of how you need to have softer foods to chew, I didn't realize it went back quite that far. You went to work in hotels and restaurants and bars. Um, and then you took on this new challenge in a care home in 2014 and I think you encountered for the first time probably although correct me if I'm wrong people with dementia and dysphagia did you know about you know that people could have really bad problems and not be able to swallow at all did you know that or
1: no not at all I couldn't even pronounce the word dysphagia at the time Um, so when I went into the nursing home the owner sat down with me as well as the director of nursing and They basically sold me this lifestyle as opposed to a job. So they told me that I would have a job Monday to Friday, nine to five uh, for a chef that just is totally unheard of. Mm. So I said, Mm. okay, so can you tell me a bit more about the work involved? And we spoke about renal diets, diabetics, and then swallowing difficulties. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, when are you going to train me? And they said, no, you'll figure this out yourself. Hmm. So I was terrified that was my very first day at work and then i ended up in the kitchen cooking as i would normally cook in any catering environment and yes you'd get everything on and you'd get sauces done and get ready for service however i was cooking meat as i would in a restaurant or a hotel mm. i didn't have it slow cooked and i didn't it, it didn't register with me at the time that this is what needs to be done i was trying to get Everything ready at the same time. But yeah. I was only one chef in the nursing home for 50 residents. So there was, it was just me and I had no support in the sense that I didn't have another chef to help me out mm. if I didn't know how things were working. Mm. And in the middle of all of that, I was just after making a cup of coffee mm. and it was taking five minutes. And a man walked into the kitchen with a teddy bear. And he was, possibly 80 years old. Mm-hmm. And I was on my own in the kitchen. The kitchen porter had left for a cup of tea as well. And he was crying.
2: Mm.
1: And I thought, okay, what, this was my first ever encounter with a person with dementia or Alzheimer's. And I thought, oh goodness, what can I do? The man mm. is crying. And the reason he was crying was he couldn't find his mother. Right, And I just thought, what am I going to do? Yes, you have, you're have. you a chef. You're in the middle of a the kitchen. There's pots bubbling. There's knives mm, everywhere. Mm, and I just thought, mm. I need to get this man out of here without upsetting him. Yes. So yes. I put my arm around him and I said, will I make you a cup of tea? Mm. And he nodded and he said, well, will we find my mother then? I said, we'll have the tea first and we'll have a chat then. Mm, mm. I didn't know what to say. I genuinely didn't know what to say. So it... it it broke my heart mm. because I obviously I didn't want to tell him his mother was not alive mm. because that would only, Drop what would that do? It would, yeah. Yes, of course, no. it wouldn't do anything. So we had the cup of tea, but that really kind of struck me, kind of went, oh my goodness, this is more than just I need to cook here. This was somebody's home. And yes. I had a job in their home,
0: not that mm. they were living in my workplace. That's such a lovely thing to hear, Neve, because so often it's not like that in care homes. And the way you responded was actually a human, loving, caring response. And so wonderful that you saw the care home as the man living in its home. (laughs) Because of course it is. Yes, it really is very simple. And the kitchen is the hub of any home. So why is it different in a care home? Yes, my mum used to have a thing up in her kitchen. She was half Irish, actually, and um, she absolutely loved cooking. It was her way of showing love, I think. And she had a little sign in her kitchen that said, no matter where I serve my guests, they seem to love my kitchen best. Um, Because that's so true. It's the heart, isn't it? It's like the kind of beating heart of a home always. I wanted to come on later because Ruby Tando, the Bake Off, I think she was a finalist, wasn't she, rather than a winner? But anyway, she wrote a really good piece, I thought, I don't know what you thought about it, in Vittles' um, on La- yeah. Lines from a magazine, where she made this point about care homes and how they exist in this sort of blurred area, but very, very important area, where it's not a, a restaurant or a public sort of place where you go to eat, but it's not quite like somebody's, you know, private home where it's just one family living. It's this very odd, blurred area that comes between a sort of public place and a very private place. I thought that was incredibly interesting, actually, and how important it is. Yes, she,
1: she really portrayed that really well, actually, in that mm. article. Mm, mm. Um, and she even compared it to, yeah, why can't we give Michelin star restaurant type food to people that live in care and we can't there's no reason why we can't Mm. I think chefs as well in aged care or in any facility their flair for food might become stale or stagnant or they might because they're doing the same mundane things so why not change it up why not give somebody something that they've been looking for for a long time we all have budgets we all have a budget at home we've budgets at work we can work to budgets when we want to Mm. so The use of working, oh, we can't afford that because of whatever the price is. Yes, you can. We all have a budget and I had one as well in that nursing home, but I managed to do certain things. We did steak nights. Mm. So you might think, is fillet steak something that can be served in a nursing home? Yes, it can. And we did. And you might think, well, why? Because Number one, it was a good cut of meat, obviously, for people to be able to chew easily. And the way it was served, it was served like a restaurant. We mm. made sure that these people had the same treatment as if they were going out to a restaurant on a Friday night, like everybody else.
0: Yes. And that brings us to one of the things that you know now, isn't it? This, The respect that's afforded people is so important and shouldn't stop. Yes completely Mm. the whole social side of food for me
1: I didn't realize how important it was Mm. but Mm. yet it is why would it be different if you have a swallowing difficulty Mm. and why I might know a bit more about that is because I did a dysphagia challenge Mm. with a dietitian where we ate foods that were pureed and liquids that were thickened and what I wanted to know originally was was I creating the food Correctly, did it taste fine and was a texture easy to swallow?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But what I found out afterwards was it was so socially isolating because I went out for a coffee Mm. and I was inside in a coffee shop with my commercial thickener and I was thickening my coffee up and people were asking me, Do you need all that sugar? Right. Mm. Clearly, it wasn't sugar, it Mm. was commercial Mm. thickener. Mm. And then I felt strange because I had to spoon my coffee. I couldn't drink it, it was too thick. Yes. And all the eyes were looking at me as if I was strange. Yes. And I had all these packets of powder around the place. Yes. So I had a lot more going on just for one simple cup of coffee.
0: Yes. Than
1: a regular person would be if they were going in. Yes. And I felt, okay, this is this is definitely something different. And I went back to the care home and we started cooking and we started doing some taste trials with everybody people with dysphagia were included just as much as people without dysphagia were included.
0: Yeah, this is another thing that I love about what you do. You say when you go into a care home and if you're training, you know, other care home cooks or whatever you're doing in the care Mm. home, you involve everybody from the manager to the porter, because everybody should be part of the food process and just noticing things and thinking, oh, you know, Mrs. Jones isn't Eating today, why not? And if it's not passed on by somebody who sees her not eating, somebody else might not know.
1: Exactly. And that's it. You've just hit the nail on the head. People would say, well, why the kitchen porter? In particular, in smaller care homes, the kitchen porter is the person that scrapes the food in the bin. So they will know where that plate of food has come from. Mm. And it's usually... It could be a cleaner picking up a tray. It could be a carer assistant walking past. It could be even the person from the laundry walking past that room and picks up that plate and brings it back to the kitchen. And says, Isn't it a shame that Mary never had her dinner? Then if that kitchen porter doesn't say that to the chef, the chef won't know. Mm, mm. Then the nurse won't know. Then Mary then is starting to lose weight and the dietitian is on the case and then the chef is into a whole other different ballgame which is a simple solution if people talk.
2: Mm.
1: Communication is huge in cooking for some of the elderly, regardless of swallow.
0: Mm, mm, mm. No, I thought that was a really good point that you made there. And it's really just like families, isn't it? How you would, you know, notice things about each other and you have to
1: look out for each other. The staff that work in a care home should really consider themselves as part of the larger picture, which would be a family. Mm, It's just what you said. So they should consider themselves part of the family that work in the home.
0: Yes. Yes. Can you remember the first meal you made with pureed food that looked like a proper meal? You know what it was and how well it worked? Yes, it was a beef casserole. Mm -hmm. And I thought,
1: I've cracked this. This is this is Great. But when I look back at the picture now, I'm kind of going, oh God, it could be better. (laughs) (laughs) But the whole philosophy was the exact same as what I do now. I just, I've done it differently. So what I do is I will blend the food into the puree. I will put, let's just take beef, for example, I would put Mm. the beef into a tray and let it cool. When food cools, it changes density. Mm. Yes. So I was able to work with the beef now that had cooled and I semi-froze it. So I put it into the freezer for an hour or two to be able to cut it into cubes mm-hmm. because I wanted a beef cube. I wanted it to look like beef casserole and I did the same with the carrots. This was before I ever had any molds. Okay. And I did the same with the carrots and I did the same with the potato and I plated it up and I had some sauce on the plate and people were like, what is this this is ridiculous it looks just like a beef casserole Mm. and everybody ate their dinner which I thought was amazing because some of these people they just needed assistance they were totally depending on other care staff to help them to eat so when they saw the food they looked at it and they recognized it and they sat there with their mouths open Whereas in the past, they'd see the food coming and they'd nearly turn their head away um, and just not really eat it.
0: Yes, because so much of food is, is about the look of it. You think about when you go out to a restaurant or yeah. even when it's served up at home, it's incredibly important how appetizing it looks. I don't know why that should suddenly go away.
1: Of course. I mean, if you were in a restaurant and something was served to you and it, you had a bit of a burn on your on your chicken or or your veg was thrown across the plate, you'd send it back. You'd kind of saying, oh, my God, if the chef doesn't care, yeah, how it looks, well, then what does it taste like? So it shouldn't be any different. And the care staff that I worked with when I started out doing this kind of food, they were very, very helpful. They kept coming back into the kitchen saying, oh, my God they loved that or they were able to tell me now that mary does not like beetroot right because everything was blended separately because sometimes we were trying to figure out why let's just i'm using mary as an example why mary wasn't finishing her meals
0: yes of course And it
1: turned out that there was an element of her meal that she didn't like but nobody knew because it was always blended together And when we obviously took everything and did it separately and the care staff now knew
2: Mm, mm.
1: not to mix everything on the plate
2: Mm.
1: because originally they used to mix everything up because they thought it was nicer and softer. Mm, mm. And that then, of course, gave it's the same principle as going back to the start and putting it all in the blender. Mm. But now we knew what people didn't like and we also knew what people loved. Mm. Yeah, because they were able to see it and then they'd say yes or no or turn their head Mm. or just Mm. look for more. Mm. What we also found as well is that people with dementia in particular, when they weren't feeling the best or weren't in the best of form for eating, they tended to go back to where you would be if you were a child. What would you love? I would love a bowl of mashed potatoes and gravy.
0: Yes, absolute comfort food.
1: Yes, that's exactly what you'd love, and something simple to swallow, and it wasn't, at sure to eat. You know, when you're not feeling well, you just want. Something we all want simple that, absolutely. Yes. Yes. So then I thought, okay, if we can just fortify and just give as much uh, nutrition into that potato and the gravy, then we have given them a meal where it doesn't really look like a meal. It's still a bowl of mashed potatoes and gravy, but we just need to get the flavors through. So gravy was made with vegetables Mm. and blended into a puree. Mm. And the mashed potato had skimmed milk powder in it to increase the protein content. And we had, yes, we had cream and we had butter and all of the nasties that some of us don't like. Mm -hmm. But people were getting what they needed Mm. in just a simple bowl of mashed potato and gravy. Yes.
0: Yes. Sometimes
1: it worked, sometimes it didn't. And when it didn't work, because we, what I found out again, another one I know now, was people with dementia prefer sweeter foods.
0: Yes, absolutely. My mother did. Yes. Mm.
1: And I thought, OK, well, what's wrong with adding sugar to mashed potatoes if it makes somebody eat it? Mm. Mm. OK, I had a small bit of an obstacle from some of the staff, but
2: mm.
1: I just we just tried it mm. and people were eating it. Nutrition only counts if it's consumed. So it's pointless
2: absolutely. unless somebody eats it. No, I know, I often
0: think that when people sort of lecture you and try and force their children even to eat things, and I'm thinking, well, I wouldn't want to have, I don't know, like a dried prune or something. It might be good for me, but I'm not going to eat it. And so what's the point? No, I certainly wouldn't eat dried prunes. <laughs> well, yeah, <both>. that's <laughs> not a good example. But you know what I mean? When people are saying, oh, you should have a, well, I don't know, but the child's not eating it. And you think, yeah, well, if they're not eating it, then exactly as you say, it's it's not going to do anything, is it? Now, tell us the... This is interesting, though, as well. This is a lovely story about the chocolate cake. And, in fact, it was interesting because it wasn't the wife in the nursing home who had dementia. It was the husband Mm -hmm. visiting her. And it was during COVID times, which we're going to come on to talk about the whole what COVID did to people re there not being able to eat together and how they then started not to eat. Actually, you you were interesting about that. But tell us about the lovely chocolate cake story, which is a good warming of the heart story, this one. Oh, yes. It was
1: actually the first of April, would you believe? Because how I know that for definite, it was the last day I worked in that nursing home. Right. And prior to that, I had a few phone calls with Anne's daughter, Annette. Mm -hmm. And Annette said to me, what's going to happen with restrictions? Are we going to be allowed to go into the nursing home and, and will we be able to you know, bring mum and dad
0: together and have balloons and have a cake. Because it was their 50th wedding anniversary, just to explain, wasn't it?
1: Oh, yes. Yeah, it was their 50th wedding anniversary. And it was the first time that they were apart.
0: Yeah, she was in the care home, and
1: She was in, yes, she was in the care home and her dad was at home, but he was being looked after by her brother. So the nursing home was in West Cork and Annette, the daughter, was living in Cork City. Right. Which is an hour away from the nursing home and restrictions here at the time, we weren't allowed travel 5K from our home. Right.
0: And Anne was the wife of Dennis in the nursing home.
1: Anne was the wife and Dennis was the gentleman outside the window. Mm-hmm. So I'll get to the window in a second. But Annette said to me, can we do, can we come up with some sort of a party? Can my mother have the food? Mm. And I said, yeah, why not? Of course she can. It's her cake. Why would I make it? A, why would I make it special for you if your mother can't eat it? Mm. So, what was wrong with Anne? Was she had? Yes, she had dysphagia, but it was a different level. So it wasn't puree. Anne needed Anne needed a different level, which was minced and moist, which what they call level five. And yes, I had to make the cake, and yes, I had to modify it. And the cake was the easy part of the whole job. I then had to ring a net and say, I will have the cake in your mother's room at three o'clock on the day. So she organized her brother to bring her father over to the window. But they went outside the window of Anne's bedroom and they were down there. And I brought the cake down and I was on the phone with my video because I had spoken to Annette. And Annette said to me, will you take videos and will you also take a few pictures? Mm. I said, I will. No problem. But I said, I'm not going to use, them. I'm going to send them back to you. And it's up to you to do what you want. Yes. It's your property. Because I felt very special in, in one sense to be part of somebody else's family's celebration. Yes, I it was
0: very intimate.
1: Mm. It was, it was really intimate. And I really did feel part of their family for that couple of moments. Mm. So I was the video, I had the video on my phone. And I brought the cake down to Anne and her eyes little because Anne used to work in one of the local supermarkets in West Cork where they were famous for baking. And she used to love fresh crusty bread with slices of fresh ham inside in it and cakes with cream. And she used to mm. love all of that. God, cool. sounds delicious. She was my best worst critic. She was, I'm telling you, she, <laughs> she'd give Jay Rainer a run for his money. <laughs> It was either very good or it was rubbish. Go back to the kitchen was usually her term. Right. And um, I brought the cake down and her eyes lit up.
0: Well, it's such a shame that this is uh, audio and people can't see because it was in the Irish Times, wasn't it? And the picture of the cake and Ruby Tandis says it was the most... I think she calls it a preposterous creation because it was absolutely over the top, wasn't it? It really was very flamboyant, sort of gothic. It was full of swirls and it was an amazing it was. cake. It was,
1: it was crazy. It was huge. And I did it so big because I felt I didn't know what else to do because there was just me and Anne in the room. Right. I was kid out with um, PPE and her husband was outside the window with her son. mm Well, it was just literally four people. But I thought, what in the name of God can I do? So it had to be big. Mm. And Anne loved the fact that it was big and she just felt queen of the day. And why not? So when we walked with the cake, I didn't put candles on it because it wasn't a birthday cake. Mm. And her face, when she saw him standing outside the window, her face was a bit shocked and a bit kind of, why is he outside the window? Mm. And I explained Anne was able to understand what was going on. She was very with it. So I told her, look, Anne, with COVID, we just can't, for safety reasons, for your safety and for his safety, we can't have him inside. And the the law says that we need to restrict Mm. our movements. Mm. So I explained that to her and she was okay with it. So she was laughing at the fact that he was stuck outside the window
2: Mm.
1: (laughs) as well. And then the poor man was looking in, knocking on the window, Mm. in a sense going, well, why can't I be in? What's wrong? Yes, so difficult because he was the one with dementia. He was the one with the dementia and had other physical issues that she Mm. needed 24-hour care and obviously with her dysphagia then as well. Mm. So she needed that bit more care at the time. Eventually, with all the pictures going and the videos going, I got a couple of pictures and I said, Anne, I looked at her. I said, would you, for the love of God, pretend that you like him or something? Look at him. And, <laughs> and you know, uh, and it was just funny because she said, would you ever get lost? And <laughs> he looked at her and she looked at him. And there was just that one moment. It is. It's a beautiful
0: picture. Yes. Magic. The picture and I had to stop mm.
1: because as soon as I took that picture, he smiled, winked at her and started singing My Brown Eyed Girl. Mm-hmm. and then I was done I had to leave the room I was, I was in a, a complete mess I mm. was sorry I was crying it was my last day of work in that environment mm. as well so I was very emotional but so privileged to be part of something that was so special to these people mm. and I had sent the pictures to Annette and the videos that that are hers and the videos haven't been seen just by her family only But Annette sent the photograph, that last photograph, to a couple of the newspapers in Ireland. And it ended up in the Mirror. It ended up in, I think, the Independent or the Times. I can't Mm. remember. They were standing there 50 years together.
0: No, and it shows what food can do and the way it triggered him then to sing the song that had been sort of their song. And it cut through to him in a way, didn't it, that perhaps something else couldn't. And you talk about that too, too in what you know now you know the way that food does so many things and as we all know really it also has this fantastic nostalgic sort of quality and you're quite right when you're ill you want to go back to you know rice pudding in my case or yes. my mum always used to make the toast you know cutting the edges off and putting them into triangles and she was very keen on making things look nice it was actually because she we, we always tried to work out how because she was from such a poor background but then we found it was because she'd been in service so she'd worked oh, in okay. these she'd worked in these very beautiful places And she's also a fantastic flat arranger and we again we were we used to be think. well how does she know how to <laughs> arrange flowers? because she'd seen it all you know in these wonderful houses yeah so she would love to serve food really beautifully presented and so you know, I I love that, and I can never hear the word trifle. My mum was famous for her trifles, you know, and things like that. There's a real nostalgia about food, isn't there? And, of course, there's the smells, and smells are very evocative, but so lovely that it did that for Dennis and Anne, and the way that was picked up. It was totemic, really, of the whole thing, wasn't it? The, the separateness. So let's talk about that, how you talk very eloquently about the way that during the COVID strictures, when people couldn't eat together, the way they stopped eating, the way, yes. and, and then you also said about the way we all do that in a sense. Because if we're on our own, uh, you're so right. You know, you just don't bother, and you very rarely sit around a table. You take your tray and you watch the television and things, so you're not really sort of eating properly. Just tell us some of your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I I do think that a horrible word, COVID nineteen played a huge element to people not eating their dinners. Yes, they were now inside in their rooms. And I noticed this more when I went to another nursing home that was struggling because they were struggling with the chef that had gone out sick because of self-isolation and ended up with long COVID. So I went into this nursing home and everybody was in their room. And I, I was struggling to understand why. And obviously it was for their safety. But they were living in this house anyway.
2: Mm.
1: And I, again, I struggle to understand, can we not just move them around a small bit? Can we, Mm. you know, group maybe four people together even? And it wasn't practical Mm. because yes, if you group four people together, it could take them 20 minutes to a half an hour to eat their dinner. Then it would take another four people, you know, the same amount of time. So yes, it was down to time, but it just was down to practicality as well. Which was unfortunate. There was nothing anybody could have done about it. We were trying to keep people safe. But there was no food being eaten. Mm. Nothing. Mm. It was a case of, oh, couldn't be bothered. Or Mm. on another world, which is sad as well, the staff didn't have time to assist everybody. And then what would happen was the food would go cold because there was no interaction, no talk. Mm. And then they wouldn't eat their dinner for that reason.
2: Mm.
1: and then you're thinking oh my god is there any way we can get thermal plates what can we do
2: Mm.
1: can we get heated trolleys and there was a lot of money spent certainly in a lot of nursing homes on heated trolleys to try and keep food warm for people right yeah you have food safety Mm. but you don't have that like yes it's very well insane. yes we can keep their food hot but there was nobody there to talk to them
0: Yes. You know, these these hidden consequences of of COVID and the lockdowns and the isolation are very interesting, aren't they? Or sad, actually, about interesting, but, you know, the less talked about elements of it. What have you gone on to do with um, all your knowledge? How, I mean, I said it was very unfortunate timing, the setting up of your dining with dignity, but what are you doing now? I know you're training and just explain what you are being able to do now that the whole world is hopefully opening up.
1: Yeah, I mean, what I've learned is that I now can hold a webinar, (laughs) something that I never would have thought I'd have been able to do. So I do some training online as well as on site. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people prefer to just see something and then go off and try it themselves. And that's fine. It really has opened the eyes of a lot of dietitians and speech and language therapists where I have been kind of harping on to make sure that they collaborate with the catering team. Yes. Because it's all very well for the dietitian to say, well, now you need to increase protein for this and off you go. But if you increase the protein, does it change the taste of the dish? And mm. if it does, who tastes it and who checks it? Mm. And yes, the speech and language can come along and say, well, you need to give this person level four, but they need to have level two drinks.
0: Yes, just explain that. That's the way that they sort of grade the level of swallowing difficulty, isn't it, in dysphagia? So which way round does it go? It's an international collaboration. It's an international collaboration of dietitians and
1: speech and language therapists where they've come together to standardise all levels. So if you're in Australia or Canada or the UK, level two is the same everywhere. To make it safe, I suppose. It's to make it safe and stop confusion and keep... Everything consistent across the board.
0: Yes, and it's too high or low. I... So you
1: have level zero, which is regular water. Then you have level one, which there's a slight difference in viscosity. Level two is thicker again. Three is like honey.
2: And right. four is
1: like puree. So it's like a right. thick set custard for all the world.
0: Right, right, right. And then the food then carries on up to level seven. So you sort of cook something. Take it down yeah. to a, to crumbs or whatever is required and then build it back up with your moulds and your thickening agents. Yeah. And the thickening yeah. agent doesn't taste. It's not cornflour or something, so it doesn't give it a taste. No. Mm.
1: Cornflour is very chalky on the tongue as well. It is, and it it's,
0: is. It's not safe because it can break
1: the saliva can break it down. So if somebody does have a habit of pooling food in their mouth when they're older, which can happen, the water can leak out of the food then and they can aspirate on something like that.
0: right. Okay. And are you finding that care homes are becoming more open-minded to all this, that people are catching on to it, that they're realising you're on to something here, Neve? Because I haven't really heard it, you know, before. Obviously, I do know all about puree food. My mother had to have it, and in fact, my father had to have it through a peg in the end. You know, he had a peg feed to his stomach. Okay. But um, this fantastically creative way of doing it, are more people doing that now? They are. It is taking off, Yes. But unfortunately,
1: the problem now that we face in the world is there's such a shortage of chefs. And, well, number one. And number two, obviously, COVID then was was another issue for people where their chefs were having to self-isolate. So there was always this risk of, yes. oh, my God, how do we create the food and how do we make it look better? Yes. Hence, then, these food molds did happen to help. It helped with consistency. It helped the chef's create things that looked better. And even if they weren't there, they knew then that somebody could get something that looked and tasted perfect because they cooked it maybe two days in advance and put it in the freezer. Mm -hmm. So they could use the meat element from the freezer and they could pipe on fresh vegetables if they wanted, or they could just simply use everything from the freezer. It gave the chefs a bit more flexibility. Yes, yes. And yes. they could build a meal with everything. So they could have a stock of food and build a meal to suit that person.
0: Yes, yes, yes. And I've seen some of the endorsements that care homes have given you. I mean, presumably they're seeing the benefits that they're not just in terms of nutrition, that they're in terms of socializing and, you know, well-being really and the whole you know, holistic approach to it. Are, are they realizing that? Is that
2: percolating they through? Are,
1: mm. They definitely are because they've noticed as well when the nutrition has improved, something simple like wound care has decreased. Yes. Because obviously, if people are eating better, they're yes. healing.
0: Yes. Yes. So,
1: not initially, but in time, then it says the staff being, yes. spending extra time, you know, looking after somebody with a wound, or their extra medication, or yes, yes, so it all kind of balances. So you might end up spending a slight bit more money on food initially, mm. but it'll reap its rewards.
0: Yes, in long term goals, mm, reduce the cost on uh, the wound, all the chemical side of things. Yes, yes. so yeah. is evaluation being done at all? Do you know or in
1: some places, yes, and more more places are learning, and they're they're wanting to know more. So there is a lot more interest in this type of training because, yes, they can you know help keep the chefs engaged and help keep the the momentum going in the kitchen, but it also means then that there is now a more collaborative approach to everything. So the dietitian will speak to the chef.
0: Yes. So there's yeah communication between the different professional groups. Mm. I mean, how many care homes do you go into now Niamh and you know how's it going? Because it, it was terrible timing for you. And so I know you had to go back to sort of ground zero. But now you're going into care homes and doing training and yeah I'm mm-hmm. going in and again I would always like they
1: will ask me, oh we just have four from the kitchen and I'm and I'm saying but who else is coming?
0: Yes. <laughs> so yes. I do want, to want everybody, to everybody mm, at the same time. Mm,
1: mm. But I'm I'm pretty much kind of booked in the sense yes there are private nursing homes but there are also the public hospitals. Yes. Which originally when I met up with procurement in the public hospital set up here in Ireland I met with them back in 2018 right. to ask them would they help improve presentation and improve everything when it came to anybody with a swallowing difficulty and they said look it's not really going to take off. And I thought I'm not looking for something to take off. I'm looking for you to help and try and train more chefs. And I will help you to train more chefs. I was looking for people to get the best possible food that they can. Mm. And they felt at the time that it was currently being done. Mm. However, speaking to the chefs on the ground.
0: Yes, you realized.
1: They were looking for information. Yes. They wanted to know how to do things. So they've signed up to a lot of the the online webinars
0: great as well
1: as me being on site so initially they might link in with a webinar and then they will connect and say right okay the chef now wants to see the food touch the food and taste the food Mm because chefs are very visual whereas dietitians are very clinical and they can you know they'll read a lot of material Yes. yes so you
0: have to approach the the two in a very different way so interesting so interesting and finally because we better draw to a close but I thought the other and you can hear it in your voice I mean you're very passionate about what you do now and you said to me when we were talking earlier that it sort of changed you a bit because you were quite shy and retiring but now you've got a real fire in your belly about this so you know you're very outward going with it and you're very passionate about it. and it's fantastic to hear um but you said it sort of changed changed you as these things often do you know I think I'm a different person of course, it's mm. so strange because
1: I would have been the person that would be kind of embarrassed when I walk into a room, or I'd mm. you know shy away in a corner. Whereas now, and it, oh my goodness, speaking in public or even speaking to you on a podcast, I would have cried for a week beforehand.
0: Oh really? Gosh. <laughs> well, you've done amazingly well then, and also you're march- marching up to dietitians, aren't you? And demanding oh, of them I'm just
1: questions saying, come on <laughs> the thing is we're all people we mm-hmm. all want to do what's best really we do
2: mm.
1: so why can't we just work together work and together. talk about it so mm. yes I know a dietitian has had their degrees and everything and chefs have their qualifications but why can't we just sit and talk and see what we learn from each other so my thing is Yes, I will speak and I'll talk all day long about dysphagia and dementia and, and the struggles that people face with food when they have dementia and give them options. So if they're not eating with fork and knife, let them use their fingers, give yes. them finger food. What's the problem? Yes. You, you have to go back to basics. You have to make it simple and accessible.
2: Mm. Mm,
1: and stop mm. getting all worked up about it. If, if if somebody wants to eat with their fingers and they make a mess, clean it afterwards. Don't clean it while they're eating.
0: Yes. Which is, You'll interrupt them. Absolutely. It's very off-putting, isn't it?
1: Completely. So, yes, I do. I, I feel that I could talk for hours on this, and it has certainly changed me, um, so much so that I've been invited to a couple of the universities to give talks on, on this to some of the students, which Brilliant. have nothing to do with dementia or swallowing difficulties so some of this is actually marketing students would you believe
0: gosh okay yeah
1: it's to highlight to them that career paths are not always
0: straightforward they're not process. linear yeah they can go yes, yes so yeah absolutely they develop and they evolve and they're organic sometimes
1: yeah and no. I wouldn't change what I do now for the for all the money in the world there's no way I, I love what I do and the people I meet are fantastic mm. and just being able to see people eat is the best feeling in the world and because we're all like yes I'm a chef but a mother wants to see somebody eat their dinner and they're happy when someone eats so it's the same motherly nurturing yes it's the same thing
0: yes yes oh well that's wonderful and who would have thought that from you know what seems like a fairly small subject you actually get so much out of it and it becomes as I said in the introduction it becomes quite philosophical really about the way we live our lives and the way we connect and and what it is without getting too sort of deep to be human really and uh, so thank you very very much and it was brilliant talking to you and you were a fantastic guest so thank you Thank you so much Thank you To be perfectly honest I wasn't quite sure where my chat with Neve would take us as I said to her, I've never really thought too much about the issues surrounding dysphagia, but I hope you'll agree that this was a truly enlightening podcast. It certainly was for me. There was the quiet, powerful impact that her grandparents had on Neve at such an early age. She imbibed their wisdom, their way with food, their fears around choking, and it came to inform her later work with older people. There was the stigma surrounding the paraphernalia of dysphagia, the spoon feeding, the thickening powders, the separation, isolation, consequent poor nutrition and ill health that can follow. This is in such marked contrast to the hugely social aspects of eating that most of us know and enjoy. Popping out for a drink, calling in for a coffee, kitchen suppers, and of course we're back to connections and the damage inflicted on our relationships, on our very selves, when they're disrupted. Which brings us inevitably to COVID on which Neve's thoughts were considered, and once again, for me at least, brought a new perspective to bear on what those living in care homes have been through in the past couple of years. Great British Bake Off finalist Ruby Tando called kitchens in institutions such as care homes the blurred spaces because they are one person's home and another's workplace. It is such a good point and one that Neve instinctively understands. I love it that her care home training includes everyone, from cleaners to managers, dieticians to speech and language therapists, so that they can all contribute vital feedback. Sometimes a person's job seems perfectly suited to them, like bread and butter, salt and pepper, eggs and bacon. And so it seems with Neve, the utterly brilliant dysphagia chef. And finally, if you've enjoyed listening today, I would be very, very grateful if you would rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform or channel you're listening to it on, as this will help spread the word about the podcast. And then together, perhaps we can further diminish the stigma, increase the knowledge and quash the myths surrounding dementia.